This is very challenging from here to the end of the year, and the reason is you guys have so much going on, of course. The first years have tests, so uh, I decided, well, we'll meet anyway, just because how are we going to get through the rest of the New Testament um, if we don't uh, occasionally do that? Next week, uh, sophomores have tests, right? Okay. Um, I think we will not have a Bible study next week because of that. Um, And two weeks from today, uh, not that the sophomores are more important than the freshmen, but um, anyway. Uh, Two weeks from today, uh, Dr. Shankel needs to meet with all of you uh, during this time. So our next Bible study will uh, be in three weeks. And we're going to have to creatively decide here what to talk about to get through the book of Revelation. The goal for two years is that we'd have more than one Bible study in Revelation, and it's not looking good, but we'll see. All right, so let's pray as we begin. Father, once again, thank you for another time that we can uh, quiet our minds and that we can focus on you. Uh, During this time, um, each one of us has a picture of you that is, of course, not 100% accurate and true, but... Uh, We pray that you may lead us along and improve our picture of who you are, strengthen our trust and our relationship in you. In your name we pray, amen. Let me just summarize a couple things very quickly that we went into in depth last time. Um, For those of you that weren't here, we spent a long time talking about Romans 1, 16 and 17. Now this is really Paul's thesis as he opens up and he expands into uh, Romans 3 where Paul would say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, the good news. It's God's power for salvation. Remember, that includes healing, restoration, like a salve for everyone who believes, for everyone who trusts, to the Jew first and also the Greek. For the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. And uh, I I mentioned that the um, scholarly world that, uh, you know, evaluates these Greek manuscripts and how the trend is so much now to interpret this verse it's called the subjective genitive form. If you want you know, technical terminology here, but the, the real meaning is that the good news is about the righteousness, the goodness, the faithfulness, the trustworthiness. Good news about is about who our God is, which is ultimately revealed through Jesus Christ. So uh, the good news is about God, and what this does is it stimulates our trust in him from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous by faith will live. And we discussed how Paul quotes this from Habakkuk and that he is answering Habakkuk's theodicy question. Okay, he is addressing our problems, looking at a violent, chaotic world that's in a mess, pain, suffering, and a good God. And that Paul is addressing these issues. And that as he goes on, that the heart of the book is really right here in Romans 3. Just to read it quickly, and again, I encourage you to read this in lots of different translations. This is the Net Bible, but uh, so many good ones out there now. But now, apart from the law, notice the righteousness of God, which is attested by the law and the prophets, has been disclosed. Namely, the righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. That is, we see the righteousness, the goodness, the character of God through what was revealed about God by Jesus Christ. For all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but they are justified or set right freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ Jesus. God publicly displayed him at his death as the mercy seat. And we talked about that, the place of reconciliation accessible through faith. Again, why did Jesus die? This was to demonstrate his righteousness. 
Okay? Jesus died. We discussed all the implications um, in, in the talk on the atonement a few weeks ago. But here Paul would say, Jesus' death was to demonstrate the righteousness of God. Because God in his forbearance had passed over the sins previously committed, this was also to demonstrate his righteousness. I mean, how many times does Paul say here that the good news, it's about what our God is like. Good news is that God is just like Jesus in character. That's the full revelation of God's righteousness. Now, what I want to continue is on from this passage here uh, to emphasize the, the natural result of seeing the goodness, the righteousness of our God. What then can we boast about? Nothing. And what is the reason for this? Is it that we obey the law? No, but that we believe. Okay, one Greek word here which can be believe, trust, faith. I think trust really uh, captures the essence here. Uh, we'll read a verse in James. The devils believe. That doesn't no good. Okay, no, but that we trust. For we conclude that a person is put right with God only through faith, through trust and not by doing what the law commands. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Of course he is. God is one, and he will put the Jews right with himself on the basis of their faith, their trust, and will put the Gentiles right through their faith, through their trust. So after saying again and again and again, the good news reveals the righteousness of God. Jesus died to reveal the righteousness of God. The, the natural outflow of that, when we see God's character fully vindicated, Trust is restored. That's the essence of the problem, a breakdown in trust. We trust God again, and that is how we're saved. And his example, next verse. Okay, Who's the best example of this? But what shall we say then of Abraham, the father of our race? What was his experience? If he was put right with God by the things he did, he would have something to boast about, but not in God's sight. The scripture says Abraham believed God, Abraham trusted God, and because of his faith, because of his trust, God accepted him as righteous. Okay, that's it. Abraham trusted God. God said, that's good. That's all I ask. And it is true that uh, all God asks is trust. Do we trust God? Good. We're like Abraham. Uh, we trust in God. All right. Now, uh, we need to spell this out, though, in a little more detail. Because, of course... When Jesus came to his own people, the descendants of Abraham, um, remember Jesus said to them, your father Abraham rejoiced that he was to see the time of my coming. Okay, what did Abraham really see about the time of Jesus' coming? But he saw it and was glad. And in Galatians, we'll read where Abraham heard the good news. Okay, he responded to that and he trusted in God. And so if we actually quote the verse here in Genesis, actually uses the word trust. Abram put his trust in the Lord. And because of this, the Lord was pleased with him and accepted him. Okay, Abraham, you trust me. That's all I ask. You're good with me. You are set right. You are justified. Okay, so coming back here to this key verse here in Romans 1, 16 and 17, the essence of the gospel, the good news, again, reveals the character of God. And this restores us to trust. And the whole book is really an expansion of this uh, basic concept. Okay, so on this trust here, I, I think we need to really nail this down. Uh, you remember the story about the jailer and Paul is in jail. There's an earthquake and the jailer thinks all the prisoners are going to escape. And Paul says, no, 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 we're all here. 
and he has this incredible breakdown moment. Uh, he led them out of the jail and said, Sirs, what do I have to do to be saved? Hey, what do we have to do to be saved? What's the essence of salvation? What would you tell someone? What do I have to do to be saved? And uh, Paul's reply, or they said, put your entire trust in the master Jesus. Then you'll live as you were meant to live, and everyone in your house included. Now, many translations say believe in Jesus, but I like the translation here. Put your entire trust in Jesus, or the New English Bible, put your trust in the Lord Jesus. If we trust God, if we are looking at the right God, if we have a true conception of his character, and we put a trust in that God, that is all God asks. Okay, but we need to understand here a little bit that lots of people say they put their trust in God. And even here, this verse in James, do you believe that there's only one God? Good. The demons also believe and tremble with fear. Hey, the demons agree, Jesus is the Son of God. The demons agree that, yeah, God the Father, they believe in him. Hey, that's not what it means to believe in God. Okay, it does them no good. What about the Pharisees? Again, we've talked about this so much, but they knew their Bibles. They were calling God by the right name. They were keeping the list externally of all the commands that God had given them. Um, and God shows up and they hated him. Now, if you'd ask them, do we trust in God? Of course they would say we trust in God. And they would call God by the right name. Okay, so it involves more than just saying, I trust in God. It means they were trusting in God that was a figment of their imagination. They were trusting in Satan's picture of God. So that's why the character of God is really the central issue. We need to understand who our God is. Do we like that our God is just like Jesus? Do, are we entering into a relationship with a God who's just like Jesus? Do we trust a God who's just like Jesus? Good. That's all God asks. You are put right by trusting in the true God. Um, so many examples here. When we went through Bible translations, we talked about Tyndale. Um, 80, 90% of the King James Bible is Tyndale. And, uh, of course, he was strangled and burned to death. His dying words were, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. And did the people who burned Tyndale, would they say they trusted in God? Would they say that they trusted in Jesus? That's why they're killing him. Yeah, we trust in Jesus. So, again, but their picture of what God was like was completely contrary to the true God. So it, it all comes down to, are we worshiping the true God? The words quoted by Jesus three times just in the book of Matthew alone in describing the second coming. And his words to the people not fit to enter the kingdom are, go away from me, I never knew you. Okay, Would these people say, hey, we, we did many miracles in your name, we trust you. Okay, But again, the words to know, eternal life is to know God. They do not know the truth about what God is like. They don't have a true knowledge of his character. They don't really trust the true God. So go away, I never knew you means... Uh, Hey, uh, you are worshiping, you may call me Jesus, but it is completely contrary to what I am like, your picture of God. You're not trusting in the true God. Okay, so on this trust, uh, remember Hebrews 11, this is the faith chapter, the trust chapter. And um, I really like the message translation, the last two verses of Hebrews 10 and then Hebrews 11.1. 1, and it's described this way. But anyone who is right with me, right with God, thrives on loyal trust. If he cuts and runs, I won't be very happy. But we're not quitters who lose out. Oh, no. We'll stay with it and survive, trusting all the way. The fundamental fact of existence is this trust in God, this faith 
is the firm foundation under everything that makes life worth living. It's our handle on what we can't see. So the most important thing is that we are in this daily, intimate, trusting relationship with God. If we are, that's all God asks. All God asks is trust. That's the bottom line. And so as Paul would go on to explain this process and how it works here in Romans 5, he would say, now that we have been put right with God through faith, through trust, that's how we're put right, we have peace with God. Or uh, I like translations that say, let us have peace. Okay, we've imagined God is against us. Now we are at one with God and we have peace. Not that God has been against us. He has brought us by faith, by trust, into the experience of God's grace in which we now live. And so we boast of the hope we have of sharing God's glory. Continuing on, for when we were still helpless, Christ died for the wicked at the time that God chose. It is a difficult thing for someone to die for a righteous person. It may even be that someone might dare to die for a good person, but God has shown us how much he loves us. It was while we were still sinners, while we still hated God, that Christ died for us. By his blood, we are now put right with God. And we've talked about the blood so many times. Um, Paul here, it's, he's compacting all of this into a nutshell. This is a summary statement. What is revealed in the blood? God became a flesh and blood human, human being. He revealed his character by becoming one of us. His death, where he shed his blood, is the supreme revelation of God's character. That's what wins us back to trust. So by his blood, by all of that evidence... We are now put right with God. How are we put right with God? We trust him once again. How much more then will we be saved by him from God's anger? Now, a verse like this taken out of context could be misleading, but Paul has just spent the whole last half of Romans 1 telling us what God's anger is. So if we have a question, how are we saved? What is God's anger? Go back and read Romans 1 where God says how he punishes, how he pours out his wrath. He gives them up, he gives them up, he gives them up three times. Not an imposed penalty, all right, but an intrinsic consequence. You reject the good news about God, you refuse, stubbornly refuse to trust in him. Uh, that is the experience of God's anger. Okay, notice, we were God's enemies. God has never been our enemy. We were God's enemies. But he has made us his friends through the death of his son, now that we are God's friends, how much more will we be saved by Christ's life? But that is not all. We rejoice because what God has done through our Lord Jesus Christ, who has now made us God's friends. Again, trust restored, relationship restored, friendship restored. Uh, what happened when Adam and Eve sinned? There was a broken relationship. God comes for a walk in the garden. They're scared to death. They believed the lies of Satan. The relationship was broken. Okay, now we are brought back into trusting friendship with God. Um, I like the New Living translation of this. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son, while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship. Okay, that's the bottom line. Relationship restored with God because of our Lord Jesus Christ who has made us friends of God. This is what I see, the essence of the good news. And this is what Paul is describing here, I think, so clearly through uh, chapter 8 of Romans. <clears throat> but now, there's one little nugget here tucked away in Romans chapter 2 that I think is so amazing. It's a very controversial point. Um, 
I know from some of the feedback I got two years ago that, um, and just talking with other people, that people see this differently. All right, but I think there's good news in this. Have you ever thought, uh, well, what about the people prior to the life of Christ, prior to the death of Christ? They know nothing of Christ. Um, Christ is a relatively new figure in human history. Uh, what if people, people today grow up in Africa or China somewhere, never exposed to this? Uh, is there no hope for people like that? Well, Paul would address that. Romans 2.13, the Gentiles who do not have the law, but whenever they do by instinct what the law commands, they are their own law, even though they do not have the law. Their conduct shows that what the law commands is written in their hearts. Their consciences also show that this is true, since their thoughts sometimes accuse them and sometimes defend them. And so, according to the good news I preach, this is how it will be on the day when God, through Jesus Christ, will judge the secret thoughts of all. Now, um, for people, let's say, of other faiths, people who never heard of Christianity in human history, um, or just, you know, again, never, never got this picture, um, who, is, who would be speaking to their conscience? Is this just a de novo experience? Is there no, God is not, uh, not interested, not communicating with people of uh, other faiths? Uh, who would be speaking to their conscience? Their consciences show that this is true. They are responding to something. What are they responding to? This would be hard for a, a Jew, I believe, to hear during this time. But Paul would go on to say, For he is not a real Jew who is only one outwardly and not publicly, nor is true circumcision something external and physical. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And true circumcision is a matter of the heart, a spiritual and not a literal matter. So what Paul is going on to explain here, what is really important is what is going on on the inside. The real Jew is the one whose heart is circumcised. And here he's describing a Gentile who are having the, know nothing of the law, know nothing of the Bible, know nothing of Jesus, but yet they are having an inward transformation. Um, in another translation, here, New Living says it this way, For merely listening to the law doesn't make us right with God. It is obeying the law that makes us right with God. Now, is this a contradiction? We just said we're put right with God by trust, and here it is obeying the law that makes us right in his sight. Uh, read this in any translation. Obeying the law, this is what makes us right in God's sight. Does this completely defeat um, everything we've been saying? Are we put right by through our works? Um, well, read on. Even Gentiles who do not have God's written law show that they know his law when they instinctively obey it, even without having heard it. They demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts for their own conscience and thoughts either accuse them or tell them they are doing right. Okay. Now, uh, just some other um, points on this, and here is what would be I think um, maybe quoted by others who would say, no, the only, there's only one way. And I agree, there's only one way. Let's try to explain this verse. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so what does it mean to, to say we can only be saved when we accept Jesus as our Savior? Reading what we just read in Paul, people who know nothing of it, but their conscience convicts them and instinctively, they are going in the right direction. The law is becoming written on their heart, the law of love. Okay, what does that mean? Uh, are there 
what is the mechanism of salvation for people like this? Or can they be saved? What about Gandhi? Um, have you ever had a conversation with someone? Will Gandhi be saved? Did he accept Jesus as his personal savior? And obviously, this is up to God, all right? So we're not trying to, to pass judgment here and, and decide whether who will be saved and who won't. But I think it does provoke um, an interesting question here. Um, have you read some quotes of Gandhi? Who would say, whenever you are confronted with an opponent, conquer him with love. Does that sound uh, familiar? The weak can never forgive. Forgiveness is the attribute of the strong. And we talked about Jesus washing the feet of Judas the night before he died. Was that an act of weakness or supreme strength? I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians, Gandhi said. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Uh, perhaps this was a, a stumbling block for him. Nonviolence is a weapon of the strong. Whenever you have truth, it must be given with love, or the message and the messenger will be rejected. An eye for an eye only ends up making the whole world blind. And remember, Jesus came along and said, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And I gave that law, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But now I tell you, love your enemy. Okay, I think Jesus agreed with Gandhi. There was a time for an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But Christians, we do not live by uh, the eye for an eye method anymore. The best way to find yourself is to lose yourself in the service of others. I mean, how much did Jesus emphasize here? My kingdom is based on the stronger serving the weaker, not the kingdoms of the world, which are exactly the opposite. Gandhi would say, hate the sin, love the sinner. Does that sound in harmony with Jesus? Now, this one I found kind of challenging. Gandhi said, I worship God as truth only. I have not yet found him, but I am seeking after him. Um, was someone communicating with Gandhi? Was someone speaking to his conscience and leading him to some of these convictions? And he would say, in reference to Jesus, a man who is completely innocent offered himself as a sacrifice for the good of others, including his enemies, and became the ransom of the world. It was a perfect act. All right. And so when I consider going back here to this verse in Romans, um, where Paul would talk about people whose God is working with their conscience, they know nothing of the law, but they demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts for their own conscience and thoughts, either accuse or tell them they're doing right. Uh, I believe the Holy Spirit is working with everyone. What does the Holy Spirit do? We, we quoted all the verses in John where the Holy Spirit pours out the truth about God, the truth about God, the truth about God, ultimately through Jesus Christ. Who's Jesus? He's God. There is no other way except through Jesus, who is God. And so uh, I believe that uh, we may have some, uh, we may arrive in the kingdom and there may be lots of surprises. And Gandhi finds out that the God, the truth that he has been pursuing with a passion, uh, that that is Jesus Christ. <clears throat> now, People like C.S. Lewis took an incredible amount of heat. Just do a search on this and you will find many Christians extremely upset with C.S. Lewis for taking this position, which, which I'm trying to describe here. In the last of the Narnia books, he describes it this way. There's this figure, her name is Emmeth, and there are, there's Aslan, of course, who represents Jesus. And then there's another figure named Tash, who is either Satan or a, certainly a very uh, despicable individual. And here's the story. Uh, Emmeth here is in search of Tash, and he has a surprise. But I said, alas, Lord, I am no son of thine, Aslan, but a servant of Tash, 
I'm a follower of Tash. And he answered, Aslan said, Child, all the service thou hast done to Tash, I account as service done to me. Then by reason of my great desire for wisdom and understanding, I overcame my fear and questioned the glorious one and said, Lord, is it true as the ape said that thou and Tash are one? The lion growled so that the earth shook, but his wrath was not against me and said, it is false, not because he and I are one, but because we are opposites. But notice, I take to me the services, and say the virtuous services, which thou hast done to him. For I and he are of such different kinds that no service which is vile can be done to me, and none which is not vile can be done to him. Therefore, if any man swear by Tash and keep his oath for the oath's sake, it is by me that he has truly sworn. And if any man do a cruelty in my name, have people done cruelty in the name of Jesus, then though he says the name Aslan, it is Tash whom he serves, and by Tash his deed is accepted. Dost thou understand, child? And I said, Lord, thou knowest how much I understand. I also said, for the truth constrained me, yet I have been seeking Tash all my days. Beloved, said the glorious one, unless thy desire had been for me, thou wouldst not have sought so long and so truly. Um, again, I think there are many people who worship a God that they call by a different name, but anything that is of true virtue and goodness is Jesus Christ. And I think those people really are responding to Jesus, though perhaps they have not uh, said the words, I accept Jesus as my personal savior. And I feel like I need to include a, a quote here for those of you uh, who are Seventh-day Adventists, maybe skeptical about this. Here are Ellen White's comments on this verse in Romans. Those whom Christ commends in the judgment may have known little of theology, but they have cherished, cherished his principles through the influence of the divine spirit. They said the Holy Spirit working on the conscience. They have been a blessing to those about them. Even among the heathen are those who have cherished the spirit of kindness. Before the words of life had fallen upon their ears, they have befriended the missionaries, even ministering to them at the peril of their own lives. Among the heathen are those who worship God ignorantly, those to whom the light is never brought by human instrumentality, yet they will not perish. Though ignorant of the written law of God, they have heard his voice speaking to them in nature and have done the things that the law requires. The law is written on their heart. Their works are evidence that the Holy Spirit has touched their hearts and they are recognized as the children of God. So that is, we are not saved by our works, but our works are an evidence of what is going on inside of us. So people like Gandhi that seem to so much live out the kingdom of God is evidence that he is responding to the one true God is how I would understand it. So when Paul goes on here, in describing these people and would say, and so according to the good news I preach, this is how it will be on the day when God through Jesus will judge the secret thoughts of all. The good news, I think God is as intensely as possible, 100% full out every single individual mind on this earth and who's ever lived is by every means trying to pour out the good news through the Holy Spirit on each and every one of us. How have we responded to that? That is how it will be on the judgment day. How have we responded to the good news? And we who call ourselves Christians and we have the record of God in human form, uh, we have the greatest light, I strongly believe. So we also have the greatest responsibility uh, to take that in fully 
and to reflect that in our own lives. So on the actions, uh, James is sometimes seen as a total contradiction to Paul, who said we're saved by trust, we're saved by trust, even though Paul just said we're, by our actions we're put right with God. This is not a righteousness by works, but, but I think uh, James here, this is a good message, where he would say, my friends, what good is it for one of you to say you have faith if your actions do not prove it? Can that faith save you? Suppose there are brothers or sisters who need clothes and don't have enough to eat. What good is there in saying to them, God bless you, keep warm and eat well, if you don't give them the necessities of life? So it is with faith. If it is alone and includes no actions, then it is dead. But someone will say, one person has faith, another has actions. My answer is, show me how anyone can have faith without actions. I will show you my faith by my actions. We're not saved by our actions, but, um, well, let's put it this way. If I said uh, a bomb is going to explode in this room in two minutes, and you all nodded and said, yep, we, we believe you. We, we, we've learned to trust you, and uh, we, we believe that to be true. Now, if you all stayed sitting here in the room, did you really? No, it's the actions. You get up, get out of the room. It's the actions that showed, yes, you really did trust. So it, it's, it's a natural thing. If we really are trusting in God, there has to be um, an action in response. You see a patient who has pneumonia, and you show them the x-ray, and you say, look, you've got fever, you've got cough, look at the pneumonia, you need to take an antibiotic. And the patient nods and says, yep, that sounds good, doctor. And they go home, and they throw their antibiotic in the trash. Did they really trust the doctor? No, it's the action of taking the antibiotic that says, yes, I really believe that doctor. They, they persuaded me. Okay, so James would continue, how was our ancestor Abraham put right with God? Well, we just read, it was through his trust, right? Look how James expresses it. It was through his actions when he offered his son Isaac on the altar. Can't you see? And here's the key point. His faith and his actions work together. They have to work together. His faith was made perfect through his actions. And the scripture came true that said, Abraham believed God, and because of his faith, because of his trust, God accepted him as righteous. And so Abraham was called God's friend. The highest possible praise you could ever receive to be labeled as God's friend. So what Abraham did is he had a trusting relationship with God. He let God down several times. Remember, he said Sarah was his sister and, and so on. But here God comes to Abraham and asks him to do something. He didn't fully understand, but he knew this was the God who he trusted in so much. And so his actions were in proportion to his trust. Trust, actions, they have to work together. Okay, so um, Paul here in describing, hey, all God asks is trust. We enter into a relationship with God. Then Paul recognizes, you know what? I am not really living out those actions as I would like to. Listen to how he describes it. I know that good does not live in me. That is in my human nature. For even though the desire to do good is in me, I'm not able to do it. I don't do the good I want to do. Instead, I do the evil that I do not want to do. If I do what I don't want to do, this means that I am no longer the one who does it. Instead, it is the sin that lives in me. So I find this law at work. When I want to do what is good, what is evil is the only choice I have. My inner being delights in the law of God. Law of God. Remember, all God asks the law is ultimately to love. I delight in that, but I don't live it out. 
But I see a different law at work in my body, a law that fights against the law which my, my mind approves of. It makes me a prisoner to the law of sin which is at work in my body. What an unhappy man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is taking me to death? Thanks be to God, who does this through our Lord Jesus Christ. This, then, is my condition. On my own, I can serve God's law only with my mind, while my human nature serves the law of sin. And here's one of these places where there should not be a chapter break. It encourages people to stop. Uh, let me come back to this. But we read on to Romans 8.1, the next verse. There is no condemnation now for those who live in union with Christ Jesus. And I think what Paul is saying is, and it's a natural result as we come to see God more clearly, as we come to see his character more clearly, we have to see ourselves more clearly as well. The closer we come to God, the more we see how out of harmony we are with our God. And so um, we become discouraged. We say, my goodness, I'm selfish. Look at all the things I've said today. Look at all the thoughts I've had, angry thoughts against uh, people around me. And we become depressed and discouraged. And uh, the key thing is, you know, don't throw away the whole model because of this, but the key thing is to recognize in this process there is no condemnation for those who live in union with Christ Jesus. Uh, it is kind of like, again, coming back to that patient with a pneumonia. And they come down and they sit with their doctor. And uh, maybe they've been skeptical. They've seen doctors. They've had bad experiences. So they're very distrustful. And finally, the doctor was able to persuade them, able to restore some trust. And they are convinced, all right, I guess I do have a pneumonia. I'm going to try to trust this doctor, even though three have really let me down. I'm going to take the antibiotic. Now, when they go home, you know, one day later, are they completely cleared up, back to normal? Um, no, they're still having symptoms, still having fever, cough. It may take some time. So very sick patients that come in to see a doctor, um, trust has to be restored, but they don't walk out of the office completely healed. Okay, They have to stay in a trusting relationship with God. And I think the promise of God is if you stay in a trusting relationship with him, again, that's all he asks, and there will be healing that will result. By beholding, we become changed. All right, And, and I think uh, what's encouraging here and what Paul is trying to say is we're all very sick spiritually. No question. But just remember, as we are revealing our selfishness and fear and pride and so many things that come out, there is no condemnation for those who live in union, for those who stay in a trusting relationship with God. The key thing is to stay in that trust relationship, connection with God. So Paul would go on to say, don't worry, God can heal you. But if Christ lives in you, the spirit is life for you because you have been put right with God, even though your bodies are going to die because of sin. If the spirit of God who raised Jesus from death lives in you, then he who raised Christ from death will also give life to your mortal bodies by the presence of his spirit in you. So then, my friends, we have an obligation, but it is not to live as our human nature wants us to. For if you live according to your human nature, you are going to die. But if by the spirit you put to death your sinful actions, you will live. And again, it's not something uh, we do. Um, you really, you can't, Cut the pneumonia out. You can't cut the cancer out yourself. Our job is to remain in a trusting relationship with God and to allow the Spirit to work within us. And again, as we come closer and closer, we see, my goodness, there's more cancer there than I ever knew. Okay, but that's, that's the process. Stay connected. All right? 
stay in a trusting relationship. I really like the medical model of explaining the plan of salvation. We need to trust our physician, our heavenly physician. We need to keep our appointments. We need to have lots of contact. We need to follow his advice. And um, all will be well. That's all God asks. So uh, last few verses here. And uh, next time we will talk about Romans 9, which is one of the biggest challenges in Romans. But we can only understand Romans 9 if we understand Romans 1 through 8. So here's how these first eight chapters conclude. At the same time, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness because we don't know how to pray for what we need. But the Spirit intercedes along with our groans that cannot be expressed in words. The one who searches our hearts knows what the Spirit has in mind. The Spirit intercedes for God's people the way God wants him to. So Jesus is our intercessor. The Holy Spirit is our intercessor. Um, Who's Jesus? He's God. Who's the Holy Spirit? He's God. The intercessor is God. The one in between is God. And as we tried to show when we went through John, the intercession is not for the purpose of shielding. It is for the purpose of interceding to bring us to God, not the other way around. And uh, remember, Jesus would say in John, uh, let me tell you plainly about the Father. There is no need for me to intercede between you and the Father for the Father loves you himself. Yes, we need the intercessor, but the intercessor is to bring us into perfect union with God. So Paul would conclude his argument this way. What can we say about all of this? If God is for us, who can be against us? God didn't spare his own son, but handed him over to death for all of us. So he will also give us everything along with him. Who will accuse those whom God has chosen? God has approved of them. Who will condemn them? Christ has died, and more importantly, he was brought back to life. Christ has the highest position in heaven. Christ also intercedes for us, just like the Holy Spirit. What will separate us from the love Christ has for us? Can trouble, distress, persecution, hunger, nakedness, danger, or violent death separate us from his love? No. In all these things, we win an overwhelming victory through him who has proved his love for us. I have become absolutely convinced that neither death nor life, neither messenger of heaven nor monarch of earth, neither what happens today nor what happens tomorrow, neither a power from on high nor a power from below, nor anything else in God's whole world has any power to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. It's a wonderful message. Uh, of, you know, All God asks is trust. There's nothing we can do to cut off the love that God has from us um, and if you do, that's the experience of God's anger, which is not seen as an arbitrary thing. And now when we come to Romans 9, uh, we'll discuss what happens to specifically Paul talking about the Jewish people who rejected the good news. So let's pray. <clears throat> Father, thank you so much that uh, there is nothing that can separate us from you except our, um, our willful decision that to reject all of this good news about who you are. So may each one of us respond fully and more fully to the good news about who you are, strengthen our trust, and may we have the Holy Spirit um, of truth revealing more clearly who you are to each one of us. In your name we pray, amen.